Howdy, everyone. Ryan Cooper here, back for another Left Anchor episode. Um, we've got a we've got a good one this time with uh, Luis Feliz León, um, a reporter who's been writing about the Amazon warehouse organizing effort for a while. Before we get to that, though, I always have to note that this podcast is now sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine, and if you sign up to support at the ten dollar a month level. You get a free digital subscription to the magazine, as well as a steeply discounted print subscription. Whatever the case, we're very grateful for their support. Definitely go check out the writing of myself and others over there. We're putting out every day. But without further ado, let's get to our interview with Luis Feliz León. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got an unusual, a, a, a first-time guest, I think, um, someone who has been published at the American Prospect. So we're we're having a melding of the universes here. Um, we're all going into the same, you know, soup pot of labor organizing. Uh, but we're we're welcoming Luis Feliz León. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's right. Uh, who is a staff writer for Labor Notes and a freelance uh, journalist in, for many publications, including the American Prospect. Um, and he has uh, a great piece, we'll link to it, about the victory at the uh, Staten Island Amazon warehouse where the Amazon Labor Union came from behind, did a kind of Mighty Ducks thing where they, you know, they they d- defied everyone's expectations and beat beat the evil you know corporate machine in a blowout um, i did not see the mighty ducks analogy coming i gotta be honest i did not <laughs> i was thinking of like sports <laughs> That's a nice throwback. Like yeah. angels in the yeah. outfield was it? i don't know <laughs> i'm not i'm not up in my sports movies um but yeah so uh you know one, one of the reasons we had wanted to have you on luis was you know not just talk about the um you know the union per se, but the whole like context of it. And so I thought you could, you could start us out by telling us about these Amazon warehouse jobs. Uh, what are they like? And specifically, why do they have 150% if I'm remembering correctly, turnover for this? So they're going, they're going through their entire workforce every eight months. What's that about? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's part of Amazon's business strategy. So, I mean, Jeff Bezos has said that having employees stay on is a march to mediocrity, something to that effect. Uh, The New York Times did an expose last year where uh, he was quoted as saying something uh, to that effect. So, so it's part of how these warehouses are organized. You know, they, they break your bodies. Um, So if you have been at Amazon for three years, you're a veteran. Some of these organizers at the Staten Island warehouse have been there for three to six years. So that makes them, you know, veterans with a purple heart. <laughs> they are decorated veterans. Uh, so that that is something that's really interesting, uh, given that it goes counter to what Amazon's intended business strategy is, which is high turnover. Uh, so the jobs in these warehouses are pretty much defined by Uh, working along a conveyor belt, picking items, putting them in shelves, and many repetitive motions, which takes, you know, a toll on the body when you're standing for so many hours. Uh, The folks at JFK in particular, the warehouse that unionized, uh, they work 12-hour shifts. 
So they have, for instance, uh, shifts that start from 6.30 p.m. and at 6.45 a.m. And some of the folks that work those shifts, they live in the outer boroughs. So I'm based out of New York City. So if you're living in the Bronx, it takes you about three hours to get home. You have to take the bus, you have to take a ferry, and you have to take a train, you know, to get home to the Bronx. So imagine um, what it's like to work back to back uh, shifts that are 12 hour long, 12 hours long, not counting the commute. So the jobs are grueling. And that's one of the reasons that animate, one of the grievances that animated the workers there was demands for better working conditions. Right. They wanted also higher pay. The medium wage in Staten Island is about forty five bucks and forty one dollars an hour. You know, they earn about uh, 20 bucks an hour with differential pay for working overnight. But it's still not enough, uh, given the, the rising cost of living. And the fact that it seems like you work a few of those shifts and you're out of commission for a couple of days, you can barely get out of bed, according to some of the people you interviewed. Right. Right. Absolutely. And some of them were working second jobs. <laughs> so some wow, of them that's wild. Work. So, yeah. So, I mean, if they work the three hour, uh, the, if they work three days a week, those 12 hour suicide shifts, that meant that the rest of the week they were working either in hospitals, doing CNA work, um, working at nursing homes. So, so this is an example of, you know, the tale of two cities that mayor, former mayor Bill de Blasio ran on. Um, a number, I mean, how many, eight years ago or so, um, this is the kind of city that we live in is bifurcated by inequality. And you have these folks, um, at Amazon that, that are basically the shock troops, you know, that they use to, to, to make profits. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the, there's, there's a thing I, I, I'd like to emphasize about that before we go on, you know, and it has to do with the self-conception and the branding of Amazon is sort of like a tech colossus, you know, like we're the internet company, we're doing shipping and like, we're super innovative. And, you know, the, the business model you're describing is the opposite of innovation in terms of like classical, like economic reasoning, production, more productivity is more output with less work. You know, like you invent a new steel foundry machine that produces more steel with fewer hours. And so like, you know, that's that's sort of the whole the story of I think the the number of man hours required for for a, a production of, you know, pig iron or whatever has gone down by like ninety nine point nine percent or something like that since the early industrial revolution in the 18th century. Um, this is just using people up. No, this is like not even this is if the analogy is is enslavement and slavery, it's not even like post cotton gin slavery. It's like the West Indies where like, a, you know, an enslaved person would, would do that for like seven years and die because of the work. You know what I mean? It's it's more like that. Just squeezing yeah. the life out of people. Yeah. And, and, and you're you're also, you know, you're you're. Your uh, 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 pre- the business model predicated on exploitation and then also predicated on everyone else having to deal with the consequences of having to work these jobs, right? So like a lot of, I've read, uh, uh, you know, I-, I believe in your coverage, but also elsewhere, some people end up disabled after working out this stuff. They'll have like permanent, you know, life r- sort of altering or ruining problems or like they, you know, their back's shot, they can barely stand or walk, you know, and like that. 
that that's a problem that like people got to go on disability insurance or something like that, or they just go without, you know, now the rest of society doesn't have that person available to work. And like, so it's, it just really cuts against the image of Amazon. I think, you know, it's fair to say it's like, oh, this is like such a, produ- uh, a productive, innovative Silicon Valley tech genius. Like, no, you're just being a ruthless, you know, corporate overlord and like just whipping people into just doing more crappy jobs like that is not that's a tale as old as time. You know, you're just you're doing the same thing that like feudal lords used to do to get more corn out of their serfs. You know, this is this is not 20th century, 21st century innovation. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, returning to the point about the injuries, right? Last year, Amazon was responsible for nearly half of all injuries in the warehouse industry with a rate of injury of 6.8 per 100 workers compared to 3.3 per 100 workers at other warehouses. So that means that workers suffered 38,300 injuries in 2021, right? So so when we talk about the jobs being grueling and breaking people's bodies, like it's no hyperbole. Like that is, that's the kind of job that um, Amazon offers. And it's unnecessary, as you say, you know, like, I'm sure those other warehouse companies are not like models of of the very best, <laughs> Safety, right? safest place you could possibly imagine. Like, I'm sure that's they're probably kind of crummy jobs, too. But like Amazon, totally in a class by itself and just just wrecking people. And that's not even to mention the covid dangers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. R- rant aside there. Uh, the um. so. Can you tell us about this, the Amazon labor union uh, experience? You know, what what made this? There, there are many aspects of the, the union campaign that were unusual uh, from the fact that it had virtually no like formal institutional support, at least from the the uh, established labor movement, what remains of it. And they kind of broke all the rules of union organizing, you know, that, that people have sort of developed over the last decades. Um, so can you tell us, you know, what, what was the story with that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think in many ways it's, it harkens back to the organizing of the 1930s, right? So they did a lot of organizing worker to worker safety and worker and working conditions were prime motivators behind Amazon workers walkouts since the pandemic and behind union drives. And that was true on Staten Island, as it was true in Chicago, as it was true in Maryland, where there were some walkouts coordinated by Amazonians United. So these conditions basically drove people to the point of saying enough is enough, we're gonna organize. So what we saw in Staten Island was the momentum of the pandemic, people feeling like in their bones that their employer didn't care, they died. And that snowballed into actions. So Chris Smalls, you know, staged a walkout in 2020 over safety conditions. He was subsequently fired along with other two other workers that were disciplined, uh, two of them fired uh, and one disciplined given a final warning. So, so this was not something that came out of thin air. You could say that they were organizing for about nearly a year. And through the experience of trying to make Amazon a dignified workplace, they were transformed into organizers. So that rank and file um, initiative is what I tried to highlight in the prospect and the piece that I wrote for the prospect, where it wasn't just that there was one 
one worker that was done wrong by Amazon and was angry and that righteous anger transformed him into an organizer. It's that there were the conditions were there for other workers to also be transformed. And it was that combination of these grueling working conditions, the outreach that workers felt that snowballed into a unionization effort. Yeah. It's, it seems to me that, um, you know, great interviews here, by the way, it, because it seems to me the relationships that you document m- meant so much among the workers and helped so much uh, to give the kind of trust you need to face this, you know, trillion dollar behemoth that, that you know, your livelihood depends upon. Um, but I also noticed that these relationships weren't just, you know, caring people. These were people that had a lot of cultural awareness, spoke many languages, had a facility with speaking to many different types of people and, and doing what, I mean, what Mark said you have to do is showing the true universal identity among all workers, right? Uh, did you find in in your journalism that, um, there, there was something, uh, different in the success here that was born of, of those connections and, and the, the ability of the rank and file to, to reach so many different kinds of people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the organizers were very talented at spotting natural leaders. And those leaders hailed from a diverse you know, range of countries. There were immigrant workers that were from Latin America, immigrant workers from African countries. And what, what I think really what was really interesting about this is that usually in organizing campaigns, the boss would use those differences to divide people. And what they did is that they actually turned those structures, those subcultures into an advantage. And they started organizing people on the basis of ethnic, you know, religious language lines and brought people together so that they could define what this union was. So another thing here that was key in terms of talking about what was unprecedented is that, you know, usually in a union drive, you get workers that are really upset with working conditions. They contact an established union, the union comes in, meets with a committee of workers, tells those workers, hey, can you get more of your friends to come and join us? And then they have an underground campaign for a few months, maybe years sometimes, where they are you know, building up this committee before they go public. These folks, before they even had a committee, they went public. <laughs> you know, They said, we're going to build a union right after the Bessemer defeat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at that point, you know, it was people that, that didn't even work in the warehouse that said they were going to do this. And it just seems to have the momentum just was incredible that other people were, they created this pull of attraction that people could come around to and, and rally behind. And that, I mean, that's unheard of. You don't generally do that because when you begin a unionization effort, you have that's that's the peak of your support through the course of the campaign. You lose support. These people gain support as they went along. So I I mentioned Brima Sila, one of the one of the key leaders who was a teacher uh, at private schools in Staten Island. And he he came on board probably like weeks before the campaign was over, but he was trusted with recruiting other African workers and he had standing in his community. He served on civic groups in, on Staten Island and that gave him a, a moral authority that allowed him to speak with confidence about why we should support this union. And that's half of the work that a union organizer does is mapping a workplace, identifying who are the key leaders, who eats lunch with whom, who, you know, who's, who commutes to, 
home with the, with the same group of friends, a lot of the organizing is really unsexy. It's not like you're Norma Ray holding up a union sign. <laughs> right. it's, it, it's more of like paying attention to those nuances, right? Of who, who sits together, who, who talks badly about whom, and even who do people that are grouchy talk positively about, right? So that, that work takes many months. And these folks are able to, to map things out, uh, you know, incredibly quickly. Um, another thing that worked to their advantage is that when the union busters came in and they started holding captive audience meetings, workers were outraged by what they saw when the union busters will kick out their coworkers out of these meetings. And that was a galvanizing event. So this older gentleman, Brima, witnessed uh, one of the key organizers being thrown out of a captive audience meeting. And he met with him afterwards and asked, you know, what happened? What's, what's going on here? Why were you kicked out? And through the course of that conversation, he learned more about the union and got involved. So Amazon's union busting was helpful to the organizing effort. Wow. <laughs> Incre incredible. incredible. I, I think it's really, it's really worth emphasizing the degree to which this kind of thing completely blows out of the water all of the previous expectations, you know, we've come to have about the labor movement, you know, that, that like, these were the sort of, uh, you know, the golden rules or the, 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 the ironclad, you know, sort of guidebook that you have to follow, you know, you have to have, a majority in the bag before you ever go public. Uh, you you can't do a lot of like weird stunts like that. Chris Smalls like brought a guillotine, a fake guillotine to Jeff Bezos's house. I mean, that would be, you know, like the conventional wisdom in union organizing is that kind of like wacky, you know, media attention stuff is just going to turn people off. You know, the sort of like 40 something, you know, single mother who, who's like going to be the deciding vote and something like this. But it seems like, you know, there, there's, there's possibly, and, and well, maybe this is like a next, next question for you, you know, that, that there is, is, uh, a, a question going forward now, um, about whether this was a fluke or whether they actually found something new, you know, that, that like this, this is the, uh, the, the the model for the future, a sort of crusading, uh, confident, you know, like devil may care attitude and like just sort of tossing the rule book out the window and being like, we don't give a shit about your staid conservative views, how many times you lost at the Nissan plant in South Carolina over and over again. You know, we're doing things differently. And that just that sort of charisma or like that energy and confidence attracting people in a sense. Um, you know, and possibly, you know, the, so between that, like that effect and the effect of like, we won once. Cause I feel like this is one of the biggest things that Amazon has in the bag or had in the bag before this was that they, all these previous things had failed. And so it's easy for people to give up and just be like, no, we can't vote for the union because they've got all the power. It's just not going to work. Give up. There's, you know, but once you've like broken the seal and people are like, oh, if we just all jump together, we'll be okay. And like that. So those two effects versus like, okay, maybe the other warehouses that the elections are coming up soon, it won't be the same. What is your sort of, you know, your sense for, for those, the interplay of those two things? You think they have a decent prospect going forward or what? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to tell because the sorting center LDJ5, it's a different kind of facility. It's made up of part-timers. So folks, Amazon has basically made this warehouse uh, virtually unorganizable because they give workers four-hour shifts. These workers have second jobs and, you know, they might be working 15 hours a week at Amazon. So they don't have the same sense of outrage that the workers at uh, JFK 8 had when it came to the ruling working conditions, you know, so this, if anything, workers are asking for more hours at LDJ 5, whereas at JFK 8, they wanted the jobs to be dignified. They wanted yeah. the jobs to be, you know, a life, a job that you could build a career on, uh, that you could do for 10 years as opposed to doing it for four months. So I think it's a different context, but I think, I think it's important to, to not, overstate like how different and how new their tactics were because when we go back to the 30s or even the 1970s workers have employed these tactics it just means that the institutional labor movement has been like has worked from a fear-based model i used to work for seiu and whenever we put out like a flyer you know it, it had to be lawyerized we had to make sure that everything was right so you mentioned you mentioned chris you know putting out a guillotine when he went to, I don't know if it was Washington or or if it was LA, but when he marched on one of these mansions that Jeff Bezos owns, you know, he he went out there and, and was fearless in terms of bringing up a class struggle unionism, a class struggle perspective of opposition to the billionaires, right? Which is the, the language that Bernie Sanders has made popular. So so I think that it's important to not overstate it and treat it as something completely novel. I think what is interesting uh, is something that Gerald Bryson said at a press conference last year. So I'm going to quote what he said because it's, it's really interesting. He said, you really want to know how we did it? I'll tell you right now how we did it. We didn't go out and get expert expert. We went out and found crazy motherfuckers just like us that ain't scared of nothing. <laughs> love that quote. Love it. I love it. So... So, I mean, if if you're coming from an institutional perspective of a union, the the reason why you want a supermajority is because before you even get in the ring, you want to know that you're going to win. These folks got in the ring with no guarantees that they were going to succeed. They were fearless. So I think that there is something there um, about militancy that is missing from the labor movement. It doesn't mean that militancy is going to get you the win all the time because there's structural reasons uh, why it will be hard, you know, to organize certain sectors. So uh, like, like the auto plants, for instance, you know, it's been notoriously difficult to organize auto plants. The moment you talk about organizing, they offshore the plant, you know, either to Mexico yeah. or somewhere else. So that's a real threat uh, that workers have to, to grapple with uh, when they decide to unionize. Uh, in terms of looking forward, um, in order for the success at LG, uh, JFK 8 to carry forward, they need to actually get a contract. In order for them to get a contract, they have to hurt Amazon's profit margins. In order to hurt Amazon's profit margins, they need to shut things down. One fulfillment center is not enough to do that. Amazon's promise of timely, speedy delivery, same day or two day, is not going to be interrupted if workers walk out of JFK 8. But if they walk out of that sortation center, LDJ5, if workers walk out in New Jersey, if they walk out in Kentucky, before Amazon built these facilities, 
for those of us that live in New York, our packages used to come through Kentucky. So Amazon has redundancy within its last mile delivery system in order to, to withstand a worker stoppage, right? So, so that means that the, the road ahead is still, you know, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, and they're going to need the support of the whole labor movement. The, ta- the Teamsters need to organize warehouses. You know, everyone, like Chris Small said to me in, in one of the interviews, he's like, look, we have this warehouse. Pick one. Organize it. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's know? right. Yeah. One at a time. That's how it works. I mean, I mean you know, you, you make a very good point about how it's it's a long-term struggle and each one matters. But I think part of the success is is the fact that, Chris Smalls and others saw their struggle in light of the overall struggle, right? Like that it wasn't just about those 8,000 workers, right? Um, and, and I think the militancy you talk about, it reminds me of a quote by General Baker that our, our good friend Dave Kybe, uh loves. It's that we have to turn fighters into thinkers and thinkers into fighters. Uh, and you write about how, speaking of that, that this isn't just new tactics, you, they, they drew upon you know, Foster's 1936 pamphlet. Uh, they were inspired by the history, uh, the historical successes of the 1919 strikes. Um, do, do you have more insight into the communication that is that goes beyond uh, getting to know the problems in the particular warehouse, but how the overall struggle is being informed by drawing on history and drawing on these uh, more successful times when the labor organizing movement across the country was in ascendancy, not not so weak as it is today, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is another interesting dynamic because unions have tried to depoliticize themselves in order to appeal to a broader audience. So when I worked for the institutional labor movement, we didn't say working class, we said working families because working class was too class conflict, really? class warfare, wow. you know, for the times. So, um, so yeah, so what these folks were hearkening back to was like militant class struggle unionism. And, uh, you know, there were folks that were on the left that were part of the organizing committee and they brought those perspectives, which was true of the 1930s. Like you need you need those yeah. left-wing radicals in the ranks uh, in order to push like a more militant political ideology. Um, and, and they were doing political education while they were at work, right? At Amazon, I've heard this from other Amazon workers. So they get discounts on audiobooks. So while they're standing in their station, they're, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're using Amazon's resources to learn. Amazing. How to Amazon. I love that. Uh, another book that they read was Confessions of a Union Buster. Um, so that they could preempt what tactics Amazon was going to use against them. That's huge. Yeah. So a a conventional union would think about doing political education after maybe, or if if they, if they even took it up, right. They would see it as separate as a separate thing. Yeah. Right. As a separate thing. Cause they, you know, and to some degree, I understand why unions may, may want to do that. You know, I, I don't think it's good if they try to just put, you know, the, to the extent that unions do political work is support the Democrats or support like, you know, which is it doesn't go beyond that. But the education they were doing was more comprehensive. It was about what kind of society we want, what kind of workplace do we want? And they looked to the to the UE. They looked to other militant unions like the Longshore Workers Union to see how they took up those questions. 
So the political education was also grounded in the realities of what they were facing. These folks, mind you, went to Bessemer. They saw how things played out there. They saw outside the warehouse um, where the signs were that, you know, basically the workers were pacified to some degree. And they said, we're not going to be like that. We're going to be more aggressive in our, in our tactics. We're going to be more vocal, more present in how we're going to agitate for a union. And had RWDSU, you know, maybe responded to them differently, maybe they would have gone down that road and partnered with them and asked them to come in. But they were forced to be independent. And in, forced to, in, in that, and in, in to the degree that they were forced to be independent, they were highly democratic. They were voting on things. They were debating. You know, it was this idea of the public square, <laughs> you yeah. know, the public sphere, yeah. if you will. They lived that. Like they were having a rich and vibrant democratic culture. They built that within this warehouse that was built for maximum exploitation. So the fact that they took that space from the boss and created, carved out a space for them to learn and flourish as human beings, I think is just radical and, and, um, and a model for other unions and for other. That's gotta be right. It's gotta be a way for the, the fact that the strategic, uh, measures taken actually embody the democratic vision that, that is the opposite of the exploitation and the tyranny of the workplace like that. There's gotta be something in, in, in that as a model for others, but you know, did the Bessemer failure occur after it, it, it seems to me that the settlement uh, between Amazon and, and the NLRB was Im- mm-hmm. important, right? And changing up the ability for where the organizing could happen. Could you, could you tell people a bit about that? Yeah. So, so a- after the, the RWDSU lost its uh, unionization bid in Alabama, uh, it, the NLRB, the labor board found that Amazon had broken the law. And part of its settlement with Amazon, uh, the, the, the company agreed to let uh, workers organize during non-work hours. So that meant that workers could distribute flyers in the cafeteria, in the break rooms, um, outside the facility. They could stand with you know, union literature to distribute so long as they were workers right, at Amazon. So... Uh, an organizer from the RWDSU couldn't go into the cafeteria, for instance, and talk to workers. So the advantage that they had is that folks will come on their days off, sit in the cafeteria for 10 hours and talk to their coworkers. They would break bread together and discuss the the benefits of unionizing. So that was a game changer uh, in terms of reaching out to workers, uh, embodying the cliche that unions always repeat that workers are the union. In this instance, the workers were literally the union. Yeah. Incredible with the lack of sleep that they were getting on the job to take their off time to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if someone could pay an organizer to do that. <laughs> Organizers also work really hard during campaigns, but but there's something to be said about just the brute force of oppression driving you uh, internally motivating you to to withstand, you know, lack of sleep, to withstand, <laughs> uh, you know, rejection from your coworkers telling you to beat it, and you just pressing, pressing, and pressing on until you got to that yes. Uh, you know, you also chip away at, at folks over time. They soften. 
you know, their stance. Um, I, I heard that a lot from workers saying, you know, the first conversation didn't go well, but when they saw me the second time and they saw that I was here on my day off, that really resonated with them. And I was able to have a conversation and answer their questions. Yeah. <clears throat> Communication, you know, as they say in uh, kind of propaganda, it's like repetition is very important um, in any kind of, you know, uh, political communication. Uh, I had a couple of thoughts on that, that, that uh, what you're talking about to me, it, it occurs to me that, that what you're describing is almost a microcosm of all of American politics that like the like with the union institutional union movement being the democratic party and uh you know amazon serving as like the reactionary you know capitalist master class whatever um just that like people you know who came up in the reagan age when it was the union movement was just getting their ass handed to them over and over again you know the patco strike was very radical and it's like illegal like they broke a bunch of laws and they thought they would get away with it they didn't they they the, a bunch of you know middle class air traffic controllers were like sent into poverty because they're forbidden from working in the industry for the rest of their lives um but now, you know, like the the political, the social context is very different. You know, we're back in like the Gilded Age, but it's still the same people by and large, not all of them. But but like, you know, in politics, especially, you know, the the top ranks of the Democratic Party are almost exclusively people over the age of 79. I think in the the idea that you could like win by being in by being aggressive and confident and like, like more leftier equals more successful uh, is like totally foreign to this class of people. And I think even for a lot of people in the union movement, the institutional labor movement that have very good intentions, you know, they've sort of have a certain learned helplessness, like a, like a, they've been sort of beaten down. And I wonder if there's any, uh, you think there's any way that you could sort of, draw these lessons out, you know, politically outside of the context of just like union movements in general to be like, okay, you know, political campaigns are, are somewhat similar and like build, bring that same type of energy to, you know, uh, uh, trying to win, win electorally as opposed to not lose Elector yeah. like electorally, yeah. which Take is like some risks. Think outside the box. Yeah. Tell the experts to go, you know what, to themselves, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think Reagan was the union buster in chief. And I think that was it had a chilling effect when he broke the Patco strike. And I think the the answer to to that top down power is more and more workers coming together and exercising collective power. Right. So the 80s were known as, you know, the reign of like individualism, like I'm going to go get mine and screw you. Um, greed is good. Greed is good. Exactly. So we've definitely seen a shift in terms of uh, people caring more about collective identities and collective struggles. So to the extent that the lessons from this can be abstracted into other struggles, um, I think you can think about the Black Lives Matter protest, the uprising also being imbued with a similar energy. Uh, yeah. We're going to take space. We are, um, we're going to draw, we're going to just build on the momentum of every street fight, every confrontation with the police until we become a national movement. And that drew people out, you know, in, in massive numbers. 
So uh, I quote Chris Brooks, uh, the, the field director from the News Guild in an article I wrote for New York Focus, talking about the comparisons between structure-based organizing, which is what the traditional unions rely on, um, and most organizers, myself included, um, and momentum organizing, right? So people were, were galvanized by the injustice of Chris Smalls being fired. They were galvanized by Amazon calling the police on, on him. Similar to Occupy Wall Street, people were galvanized by you know, the police descending on protesters when they were crossing the Brooklyn Bridge. So the idea is that you take these moments, these galvanizing moments that are triggering events and you built on that instead of trying to police it and start, instead of trying to neutralize it, which is usually what has, I'll give you a concrete example. In 2006, we saw millions of immigrant workers, you know, march through the streets demanding um, comprehensive uh, immigration reform. And it was also in opposition to, uh, to the Sensenbrenner bill, which would have legalized basically, um, you know, would have allowed for all these immigrant workers to be targeted and deported and so forth. So what happened subsequently to those marches was that that was all institutionalized in a way that it defanged the movement and brought it within an incremental approach. Let's fight at the state level for driver's licenses. Let's fight at the state level for, um, for municipal IDs. So this larger transformation of society, this vision of what can an alternative world look like was basically foreclosed on for crumbs. I mean, that's my, yeah, <laughs> that's sure, my yeah, opinion. No, it makes sense. Yeah. That's my, my opinion. Other people well, may disagree with that, but no, no, I, I love that. What's the key there? Because like at the same time, we need the NLRB to, to rule and be pro-labor. We need, we need the help of the state and we need to do things through the state also. Right. But how do we have the, the collaboration and the complementarity of those struggles rather than a zero-sum thing where it's one or the other, do you think? Right, right. I mean, I think it's one of the things that labor history teaches us is that you don't get the NLRB without, you know, the sit down in Flint. So labor law is going to respond to worker mobilizations. They're going to try to say, we have to do something here, right, to institutionalize this. Yeah. I think we, we're seeing an interesting dynamic now with the general counsel of the NLRB, who, who is trying to revive the intent of the National Labor Relations Act, which is to allow workers to organize, right? Like yeah. it's, it's protections that have been eroded over decades, but they're trying, you know, as best they can to revive it. But it's not happening in isolation. You see Starbucks workers filing for elections. But imagine, like, I don't think this would have been conceivable during the Obama years. No. Right? So Biden, I don't think Biden is a complete departure from Obama, but the, something has shifted. There's, yeah, there's different a different time. Different time. There's a different, uh, the, the spirit of militancy is in the air, if you will. Right? And the NLRB is responding to that. So I don't think Jennifer Abruzzo um, could issue memos that were divorced from, you know, the, uh, the RWDSU challenging the legality of captive audience meetings, right? That she could issue memos where Starbucks is trying to expand the bargaining unit to a, a regional bargaining unit instead of a store by store so that they could dilute the worker power, you know, that Starbucks workers are trying to exercise. So these things go in tandem. Um, what I... 
what I resist sometimes is giving too much power to the law because there's no substitute for workers exercising power. You, we know that Amazon could, Amazon can litigate this election to the end of time, you know? So if you're counting just on the law to, to make this work, you're not going to get very far. But we know in Flint that the governor played a key role. You know, in ter- it wasn't, the, the governor sent in, you know, state troopers to protect the strikers, <laughs> right? So, so you do need, a, the state needs to play a role. So it's definitely- What's a, What are you, sorry to bust in, what, what do you, explain us what you're talking about in, in Flint momentarily. Yeah, so, so during the Flint sit-down, uh, Governor Murphy, I believe. Um, when was this? This was in 1936, 37, I believe. But I may be getting the dates twisted here. But basically, this was a moment of worker upsurge. Workers were sitting down. They were sitting down to stand up for labor rights. And they were saying they were trying to unionize auto parts plants in Toledo, in Michigan, throughout the country. Prior to these massive mobilizations, the the auto workers had about 30,000 workers. In a number of years, it surged to 400,000 workers, right? And the company, GM, wanted was sending in goons to basically break the strike. What the governor did in Michigan was send in the National Guard so that the strikers inside the facilities were not threatened by these goons. So this was the opposite of Reagan's historic moment of becoming union buster in chief and siding with the companies. This was the state, in this case, Michigan, siding with these strikers. So so this is like the equivalent of, you know, if Biden had not (laughs) walked back when he said, Amazon, we're coming for you, right? (laughs) This would be this would be Biden putting his thumb on the scale on the side of workers, which I doubt he's going to do. Right. you guys should write some articles, up, you know, speaking straight to Biden and, you know, and who knows what the old man might do. <laughs> oh, he needs the pressure. He needs the pressure. Yeah, that's what well, I think that's key. These are all sites of struggle and history shows that pressure works uh, and, and we need to fight all the fights we can. And that's why, it, as silly as it sounds, the, the solidarity, the militancy, but also the charisma and fun and energy from Chris Malls and others, it matters. You know, I think we have a tendency to kind of um, belittle young people on, on and their TikToks and whatnot, but but I think there is something too. These are fucking tiring battles, and it's exhausting to see all the losses and all the old assholes in Congress do their thing. You know, so a little fun, a little energy, a little novelty, a little hope comes. I think uh, with all that. Anyway, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think there was an iconography of unapologetic blackness unapologetic, you know, drip. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yes, yeah. absolutely. You saw More that. More of that. T- uh, tell us a little bit um, about the the folks who were not Chris Smalls in the union organizing effort. I, I feel like, you know, one of the uh, great um, effects of leadership is not, you know, it's you're not uh, ex- like just telling people what to do, creating little drones who will follow you around. Like that's a cult. 
like like it seems like what was happening with the Amazon Union is that like sort of setting a little bit of an example and like starting this little thing up uh that he sort of crystallized up and like people who had in some cases never been involved in any kind of organizing before in their lives like suddenly jumped in and like found you know sort of discovered what they always had like wanted to do and and that they were good at it so can you tell us about some of these lesser known uh union organizer folks yeah i mean i think there's something interesting here there's two points that i i like to um make on, on that question. The first one is that there was this roving ban of radicals from Arizona, from New Jersey, from LA, that all coalesced around the Amazon labor union. And before that, the Congress of Essential Workers. And what speaks highly to Chris's leadership is his ability to create leaders and make room for other leaders to emerge, right? Yeah. So. There was this young man named Casio Mendoza who was really shy about media attention. He was in LA when uh, Chris, uh, Derek Palmer, uh, Jordan Flowers, and uh, Gerald Bryson marched on a mansion that Jeff Bezos owns in LA, right? And he saw, he connected with them via Twitter online somehow and said like, hey, I support what you guys are doing. He took a flight from L.A., came to New York, stood outside the bus stop, uh, took a job at Amazon and said, I'm going to support this effort. By his own admission, he sucked at first. No one would talk to him. Like <laughs> Chris Smalls didn't tell him, you know, go, go back to L.A., leave. He told him to keep on trying. And eventually he became one of the most talented organizers. He put together the political education binders that workers were reading um, during their overnight shifts at Amazon. Uh, and in addition to, to him, there was this other guy named Brett Daniels from Arizona. Brett was looking for a cause to support. And he had tried working at a fulfillment center in Arizona with the intention of organizing it. And that didn't really pan out. So when Chris and the others formed the Congress of Essential Workers, he came down, met with them, said, I'll do all the grunt work. If you want me to put out a flyer, if you want me to put out a press release, I will do all of that in the background. I just want to support what you guys are all about, right? So Brett comes from a union family. His mom is a flight attendant. His dad was, is a firefighter. Uh, Casio's dad is a videographer for Unite Here Local 11, which I mentioned in the prospect article. Uh, so these are two, two key leaders in this campaign. Um, and what's interesting about them is that these folks were not salts, right? So assault is someone that a union pays to go in and organize a workplace. These yeah. were left-wing people that supported unions and said, hey, there's a campaign here. Here's a mass leader in Chris Smalls. We want to support this Chris Smalls guy. And then Chris Smalls' leadership quality was that instead of turning them away and being like, what are these two white kids from LA and from <laughs> coming here, you know, trying to be part of this? Like, no, he brought them in and he trusted them and they became a critical part of the organizing infrastructure. Um, another thing that is worth mentioning is that there was a cult of personality that the media, or there is a cult of personality that the media wants to build around Chris Smalls. 
Yeah. And part of the reason why, when I pitched this story to David Day and I told him, look, I'm not going to write a profile of Chris Smalls. There are going to be hundreds of them, you know, but I can write a profile of some of the other organizers uh, because I wanted to make sure that we recognize other leaders in this movement. But one of the things that Chris was really ingenious about is that when they were running, uh, you know, low on funding through their GoFundMe page, he would go and give out uh, an interview and give a really quotable, you know, statement to the press was the press will gobble up and then the funding will come in. So they were able to leverage this public persona about of, around Chris. And in that they distracted Amazon because Amazon targeted him and made the organizing about him. Had, organ, had Amazon actually figured out there are more leaders here than just Chris Smalls. We have to go after these leaders in the warehouse. Let's fire Angelica Maldonado. Let's fire Casio. Let's fire Brett. You know, I think we would have seen a different outcome in this election, but Amazon didn't do that. And if they do that now, you know, all the spotlight is on them, but it's not beyond them. I'm not speaking this into truth. That's what, that's what union busters do. Amazon has fired workers for organizing, right? Um, right. Which but, is illegal. Which is illegal, but it doesn't prevent them from doing it because all they'll get is a penalty, you know, and it takes years for, for, those, for them to pay up. Um, and by that time, the unionization effort could be dead, right? So, so Amazon b behaves like, like it's above the law. But the point being that there were a lot of leaders in the, inside the warehouse. And Chris Moss was outside the warehouse. As important as his work at the bus stop was, the critical organizing happened inside the warehouse. That's yeah. where I question how strong RWDSU RWDSU's bench was. Did RWDSU have that many natural leaders inside? Like, you know, we don't, I don't know. But what is clear is that the Amazon Labor Union did have those leaders. Uh, and they were ingenious about how they leveraged, like the myth-making, right? Like all movements engage in myth-making. They, they create a leader and they create narratives to captivate, you know, the nation around so we, you mentioned the Mighty Ducks. I mentioned the Disney movies, yeah. you know, like uh, in my, in one of my leads for, for labor notes. So, you know, we already ceased on a narrative to make sense of this story. But I think the story that I find most compelling and interesting is about these roving bands of radical. Bernie's, how oh, was the word that I, that I wanted to search for? But the point is that there were, other folks as well that, you know, worked for the Bernie campaign that were supportive, like um, yeah. uh, his name doesn't come to me now, but basically right, yeah. uh, he, there, there was this organizer that sent in his resume to Chris Smalls and said like, Hey, I want to support you guys. <laughs> he had worked on Bernie's campaign and was looking for something else to support. And That's awesome, he, yeah. he was brought in. Uh, so, so, you know, it says something about a leader that can, that can cobble together an organizing team made up of so many disparate people. There was also another yeah. guy who's a Trumper uh, who they brought in, you know, uh, the middle-aged dude was a former dock worker. He went, but he was very pro-union and he supposedly flipped a lot of workers because he was respected. So he was- In Staten Island. In Staten Island, yes. So at Staten Island, you know, you, you have a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of Trumpers in Staten Island. There's no getting around it. Right, yeah. right. So- so they were able, you know, that's the thing about unions too. They're not self-selecting, right? You, you go to, um, 
You go to the Sunrise Movement. In order to sign up, you must believe that climate change is real, right? In order to sign up for a union, all you need to do is share a workplace. That's it. You get a diverse, no, that's right. A diverse and, you know, it's, of people. This reminds me of a few few things. One, first, and hopefully we'll come back to this because you know this inside outside. Um, strategy and and aspect that you're talking about seems really important to me. Like the the fact that organizing on the inside is is the most important, but like there's a PR game that involves resources uh, on Amazon's part that they have to combat. Uh, by the way, all the journalists out there, you're doing good work. If you're blasting Amazon, keep those PR people busy, right? Like keep them focused on you, the journalist, and whatever <laughs> story you're writing while the workers do the organizing. Um, but uh, but also the fact that there are so many people who are craving a fight, like this goes to the kind of the militancy thing, like there are people that are waiting to fight these assholes and to fight for justice. And part of what you're describing there is an amazingly efficient way through PR and through kind of recognizing a major battlefront to like a call to arms. You know, there's a Greek... Um, poet Odysseus Elitis, uh, who wrote, you know, each to his own weapons. Uh, and, and this is like, whatever you're good at, wh- wherever you can fight, like, come, let's, let's do it. Come, well, you know, it's the call to action, call to battle. And I think that's so awesome. That's so important. It reminds me of the situation in Ukraine to some degree. You have uh, an extremely charismatic, media-friendly president who is putting his own life at risk and Kind of partly as a result, this like incredibly dogged resistance against a very much superior foe, you know, like the Thumos, as you would say, Alexi, like, like that factor in politics is very much underestimated. Uh, you know, the, the way that, that like a real, like dedicated cohort of people who really believe in what they're doing can, can really punch above their weight, so to speak. Um, but yeah, what what you're saying, uh, Luis, about these these folks, you know, it it, were, it it seems like one of the most admirable qualities of a left wing uh, movements in general that like it opens up spaces for people to sort of like become their best selves, so to speak. Like what you've been talking about, you know, it's like people who have been kind of you know. Li- li- living on the margins or sort of downtrodden for a long time, or they're like looking for something to do. And then it's like, as soon as there's like a, 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 a way for, for like a, a cause that is like, like legitimate and um, powerful that they can dedicate themselves to suddenly things change. And, and, you know, you, you have not only the leaders, but just like people who, uh, you know, taking a, Taking a stand, voting against, you know, I think the fact that that so many other union votes against Amazon have been lost proves that this is not a trivial decision for people to make. You know, people are fearful, but like taking that step to be like, yeah, I'm voting for the union. Fuck you, Jeff Bezos, world's second most richest person. You know, like that that is something for someone who's been living, you know, in like minimum wage or $20 an hour at this price of like a vertebrae every couple of months. You know, that that's that's not nothing. Um and it's it's a a significant dedication of of courage, you know, and it's like the stuff that the 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 stuff of life, you know, and 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 the way that um these sort of lefty collective movements can allow people to like 
uh, a flourish in a way, in a, in a in a human way, I think is really kind of underestimated, and is maybe in a sense like kind of at the core of why they were able to succeed. It seems like. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's that's right on. Um, I mean, I think they were also, you know, folks were transformed in many different ways. So you had Derek Palmer who aspired to be in management. Every step of the way he was turned down. Chris Smalls also aspired to be management. You had folks that suffered from disabilities and were unjustly fired by Amazon. And then the pandemic hit and they were vulnerable and Amazon wouldn't close down. That was the story of Jordan Flowers, right? And then you have people like Michelle Valentin Nieves. She was one of the older organizers, 45 years old, has been at Amazon for three years. She's a veteran. By, stand, by Amazon standards. And, you know, one day uh, she saw a manager come to her and, you know, berate her for, for whatever reason. And Derek Palmer approached her and said like, hey, what's going on? And told her about the union. So there was righteous anger that people were able to transmute into organizing, you know, dedication and to take on this, you know, this behemoth that was making their lives miserable. And then there were people, the word I was looking for was Bernie's orphans, right? Yeah. You, ha- you have the, <laughs> the folks that were part of the yeah. Bernie campaign, similar to what you were describing, Ryan, about this space where people get to, that movement spaces create these environments where people are transformed and they get to flourish and they get to experiment, um, you know, with, with new, new abilities or try on new things. They were seeking for that. They were hankering after the feeling of that Bernie revolution that, you know, was halted in its march. Yeah. Uh, and, and they found it in this campaign. So you also had, you know, young college kids um, that, that caught the Bernie bug and were looking for an experience, you know, at, that was similarly transformative. And then you had the folks that, you know, were just... Uh, diligently working to make ends meet. And then you have this pandemic, this global pandemic that by all historical accounts, going back to the plague, after a plague, there's usually an upsurge, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It has, it has to be a release of energy. Is this our release? I don't know, but, but it definitely did factor in, you know, then you have inflation, you have a tight labor market where people say, if I get fired, I can get another job. You know, so those all those factors create conditions where workers are willing to take risks. Like the last time we had upsurges beyond going to the 1930s, where which is where everyone goes, is the 1970s. You talk to Teamsters about the 1970s, they could go to any warehouse and they would find a job, you know, Um, like jobs were plentiful. So you had you had work stoppages and massive. We talk about striketober, but those numbers were paltry in comparison to the walkouts that we saw in the 1970s. And I think, you know, historians have written about the 60s as being uh, an upsurge created by the abundance of the 1950s and early 60s, that people felt comfortable enough to take these risks, right? Like, unlike what the popular narrative that desperation breeds like radicalism, it actually doesn't. It leads to fascism. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Yeah. It's at that end. It's moments no. where there's an opening and people feel secure enough to say, I'm going to fight for more. I'm going to demand more. And I'm, 
it's my right to get it. And if they don't give it to me, I'm going to take it. I think that's what the Amazon workers, you know, showed. Well, we're uh, probably just about out of time here, but can you just set the table for the next couple of weeks? What what elections are coming up um, for the Amazon union? And, and what do you have an estimation of their progress or are you are you just totally at sea? Is there anything anyone can do that's listening to help? That too, yes. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think we've all been proven wrong. So prediction is for fools. So I won't predict how the vote will go, but I can tell you what I have seen. So I've been at shift changes at the second warehouse, which is voting on from April 25th to April 29th. The results will be known May 2nd. Um, The facility has about 1,500 workers. It's a sortation center which means that packages come there and they're sorted to be dispatched to for delivery to the postal service, to Amazon flex drivers, to, uh, you know, their, their contractor, the DSPs, uh, the, the blue vans that we see in our neighborhoods. Um, so that's what happens at that warehouse. From talking to workers outside the gates, what I have seen is that a majority of them are undecided, which means that if the union is successful at talking to every single worker at least more than once to inoculate them against the propaganda of the union busters, they may have a really good chance of winning. That prospect is, is, is undermined by the realities that it's a part-time workforce. Uh, so you have to capture people that may be there one day a week, two days a week, and persuade them that it's in their interest to band together and form a union. So uh, that's where things stand right now. Workers are working around the clock from the Amazon labor union. Uh, Their coworkers from JFK are walking across the street where this facility is, and they're trying to communicate to them the benefits of joining a union. Uh, The union busters are really aggressive They blamed a worker suicide on one of the key organizers, this young woman named uh, Madeline Wesley. Um, She she was involved in organizing cafeteria workers at Wesleyan and has been at Amazon for a number of years. She's originally from Florida. It's one of those roving radicals (laughs) that was embraced uh, by by the independent union. So Amazon is playing dirty. Uh, but workers can point to the example of JFK successfully organizing and, you know, one success breeds more success. So let's hope that that's the case in terms of support, you know, um, they're going to have a press conference on April 24th. I don't know. The time hasn't been announced yet, but what the labor movement can do is put pressure, you know, and every politician should be, should be talked should be, putting pressure on Amazon to recognize the result of the election at JFK. Amazon has filed objections to the election result, absurdly claiming that the workers intimidated their coworkers into voting for the union. And, you know, <laughs> like, the, the employer has access to their paychecks, to their emails. If anyone has coercive power here, it's Amazon. And not to mention it's coercive power via surveillance. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, they're, they're banning words. I don't know if, if, if our audience realizes this, right? They, I don't know the, the internal communications. They're yeah. uh, any any phrases that sound like they're uh, riling up the troops. You know, they're gonna they're gonna ban what like pay raise and uh, some some of those words are really telling, right? Like there's plantation is one of the words, and like so uh, I mean it, it, they're kind of telling on themselves a little bit here with the words they chose to ban, right? Right, right. Yeah. A lot of workers define working at Amazon as a slave plantation. So which is I mean, a lot of the workforce is African-American at this sortation center. It's 40 percent African-American, 40 percent Latino, with the remainder being Albanian workers, Albanian immigrants. Interesting. So, yeah. Albanian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they speak Italian, probably. From my knowledge of Albanians, they also speak Italian. So bring in the Italians to help out. No, they, they've translated the materials into Albanian. Perfect, perfect. I, I spoke to an 18-year-old Albanian worker who's in support. The workers, also, they tend to be younger, too, at this warehouse. Between, in the early 18 to 23 so that's is that the TikTok wow. generation? I'm too old. I don't know. Is that the is that the right? I define I define the different groups by which social media thing is their thing. I don't know. It's like <laughs> I think I think that's a TikTok generation. I think you're right. <laughs> I, I joke with my students that it's all about the Pinterest, and they don't realize that I'm joking. They just think I'm old. So, um, <laughs> yep. Well, well, thank you, Luis. This is this is uh, heartening. I know it's going to be a. The thing is, it's always going to be a struggle. But like Sisyphus, we got to be happy with the struggle. We got we got to be energized with the, like the roving, you know, radicals. To energize just for the fight itself, because the fight keeps going, and there's something something heartening in doing it together, right? So appreciate you and your your contributions to the fight in organizing and writing, and and for everything you you've told us in the audience. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.